This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. Also, Hugh Syme, the legendary Hugh Syme. <laughs> hey, everybody. Keep your <laughs> eye on him. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, drummer Mike Portnoy. Mike is one of the founding members of Dream Theater, with whom he was with for 25 years, and is currently the drummer in Sons of Apollo, the Winery Dogs, Transatlantic, Flying Colors, the Neil Morse Band, Metal Allegiance, and Liquid Tension Experiment. He has also recorded or toured and performed with bands like Avenged Sevenfold, Twisted Sisters, Stone Sour, Fate's Warning, Overkill, and more. And he has four tribute bands with Paul Gilbert, who's been on the show as well, which is super cool. Uh, anyway, welcome to the Music Buzz, Mike. Well, we're out of time now. Sorry, but thanks for having <laughs> me. <laughs> Man. Just get, get all of it out of the way so that we can talk about <laughs> yeah, you know, no fun kid. stuff. And no hope. And no home life, right, Mike? <laughs> well, the, we the, I created COVID so I could actually have a couple of years off of my family. <laughs> that was I, oh, But don't tell anybody. That's all right. Thanks a lot from the rest of us. I always love it when I get to talk to another drummer on here. And uh, what a legendary one you are, man. It's really a treat. And what I wanted to do was, uh, I always do this when, when I have drummers on here, to talk about some songs that you've played on that are maybe not the songs that everybody else knows and maybe check that stuff out and you know dream theater everybody's well acquainted with what you've done there which but there's a lot of stuff that you've done on some of these things that i hadn't heard that kind of blew my mind yesterday so yeah, i just want to start i want to talk about those a little bit the liquid tension experiment man the first two tunes i think it's the first two paradigm shift and kindred spirits I mean, your double bass fury is been very meticulously done and perfect, but it's just great. It's so tasteful the way you do it with the dynamics. And there's there's a groove and chops with that, which is there's a lot of guys that can just, you know, spaz out. But you do it in such a musical way. It's just, man, it's exhilarating stuff, man. It's fantastic. I just loved it. Uh and the Chris and Kevin's excellent adventure. That sounds like an outtake from Joe's garage <laughs> to me. It's really cool. That halftime shuffle thing. And the way you manipulate that you do, you start with the snares later, and then the snare comes on the beat. And then you do that. It's just really good. It's just fantastic. Well, thank uh, you, man. Every drummer is going to want to hear that. The tunes you're um, citing was from our first album that we did back in in 97 so that's already almost 25 years ago so at that at that time that was really the first time anybody had stepped outside of dream theater to do anything outside of the band and jordan rudis 
wasn't in Dream Theater at that point. So it was really something I put together to work with Jordan and the legendary Tony Levin. And then I brought Petrucci along for the ride. And then we and ended up creating LTE. But, you know, when we did that album, we were still youngsters. You know, me and John were in our 30s. Jordan was in his 40s and Tony was in his 50s at the time. Now, we got back together in 2020 to do a third album which was our first one in like 22 years. And now suddenly me and John are in our fifties, Jordan's in his sixties and Tony's in his seventies. So, you know, we had this reputation that we had to keep up with, you know, all these years later to write that style of instrumental prog fusion, intense stuff. And, uh, you know, 20 something years later, it kept us on our toes to be able to, to play like that and write like that. I saw it on YouTube by accident, the Liquid Tension Project. But how is it playing with with Mr. Petrucci again? I left Dream Theater back in 2010, which is, you know, 13 years ago at this point. I was there. Yeah, you were there at the time. Yep. And uh, and you're still there with them. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, it took many, many years for the uh, for everything to heal after that process. And uh you know, John and I reconnected uh, many, many years ago, mainly on a personal level because our families are all still friends. You know, our, our both of our daughters share an apartment together in New York and, and our wives are our friends and play together. So, you know, it, John and I started hanging again. And then um, years later uh, in 2020, we re reconnected on a musical level and I played drums on his solo album. And then we did LTE3. And then uh, we actually just did our first tour together uh this past uh couple months ago uh we spent two months out there playing on his solo material tour so in answer to your question hugh i mean you know there's a there's a real chemistry that john and i share and a real history we met when we were 18 years old at berkeley college of music and that's where we formed dream theater so there's a, a real history and he and i have a inevitable drum and guitar connection that's similar to maybe like Lars and James with in Metallica or Eddie and Alex Van Halen or, you know, Dimebag and Vinnie Paul and Pantera. There's a real drum and guitar connection that we share. And and, and it's very, very obvious. And playing together on his tour this last uh, couple months ago, you could feel the emotions in the air. Obviously, he and I were enjoying every moment of it, but you could see everybody in the audience felt the emotions. You know, we were watching grown men cry every single night, you know. Good for you, man. That's awesome. There is something about that, about spending time. Like like I said, I've been in John's band, Malachi's band, for 27 years. And the lead guitar player, Andy York, and I, it's like when if we're in the studio and we're doing a take together, a lot of times just he and I will cut a track together because we know it's going to we're going to know exactly what to do. I mean, that's that was that's the the relationship John and I have a very drum and guitar oriented uh, chemistry. And that's the way we wrote together in dream theater and LTE with no disrespect to anybody else in the band, but we were very much the anchors, but I, I, I have different connections with different musicians in different bands. Like I, I work with Neil Morse uh, in three different bands and he's a keyboard player, singer, guitar player. So, you know, that's a, a little bit of a different chemistry. And then uh, of course, Billy Sheen and I are in two bands together with the winery dogs and sons of Apollo. So that's a, a situation where I have a very close relationship with a with the bass player. So different bands have different kind of chemistries. How could you not with those two bands? Uh, this is a complete aside, but I, I didn't know that the six degrees of separation became even tighter spirals when I when I discovered that your wife from Mean Street went on to have band members marry uh, John, both Johns, Petrucci. 
and my young. <laughs> I didn't know that. Man. When John Petrucci and myself met our wives back in the late 80s, they were already in this all-girl thrash band called Mean Streak. I used to go see them opening up for Anthrax and Overkill and Motorhead and, you know, all the, the metal clubs in New York. And eventually we connected on a personal level and ended up uh, dating and then ultimately ended up marrying. And then years later, John Mayung uh, connected with uh, their original bass player as well. So, yeah, three of us married three of them. But then once we all started families in the, in the early 90s, they they hung it up and retired. And then only recently uh, during the pandemic kind of reconnected and say, hey, hey, let's, you know, now that our kids are out of the house and growing up, you know, let's get back together and put the band back together. And then we ended up doing this this tour together and they opened up the whole Petrucci tour for us. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah. So we, we spent eight weeks on the road out there together. It was like a big, giant family reunion. You know, the, all the people that, you know, met in the late 80s and hung out in the late 80s and then kind of all went our separate ways when I left Dream Theater and we all had families. And then we kind of all came back and reconnected for this amazing tour. I know this is your interview, but how are Mean, how are mean Streak? I've got to check them out. They're a, a metal band. Uh, they're not they're not prog at all like what John and I do, but they're. Like I said, when I when we met them in the late 80s, they were opening up for all these thrash bands and they were like the first kind of all girl thrash band at that time. So I'm, I'm going to get back on what I was talking about. So it, so the liquid uh, tension experiment two. what year was that? Was this just a few years after the first? That was, one, right? that was 99. Yeah. OK, well, acid rain off that. It, I mean, right off the bat, that's a classic drum track. Uh, again, with your double bass stuff is in the finesse with it. It's fantastic. Uh, I also really enjoyed kind of, again, a, this is a totally different thing. The S.A. Adams Unearthed album. Oh, my God. How the hell did you find that? Is that is if you hit Mike Portnoy on uh, on Apple Music, it comes up. It's right there. You got to be kidding me. Wow. Well, that's I did that when I was in high school. Well, that's the thing with these with streaming music. You don't really get any context or background. So I, I would hate for somebody to open that up thinking that's something I did in 2022. I did that when I was like 17 years old back in, you know, 84 or five. So I, well, I you can't can believe tell, that's even out. You can't tell that you, you can tell that you're chomping at the bit because it's like the Ramones. I mean, it's totally punk that that tune is like speed metal galore. <laughs> I can't believe that's even out there. So go back and check it out, man. No, I just dug it because it's so different and much more raw than the other stuff. Not knowing, I didn't figure you had just done it, but there, it's right there. You need to go check it out. Wow. Okay. But so my favorite thing from you recently, because the last thing I found was the cover to cover record that you're on. Is that the name of that? There's three of them. It's myself and Neil Morse, the three of them. Well, I only see there's only one that I saw that came out in 2020. Okay, that was the third one. Everybody's got to check this out. Everybody on this podcast, you you two other guys and everybody that's listening, uh, you did a song from one of my top three or four albums of all time, uh, Aqualung. You did Hymn 43, which is my favorite song on Aqualung. And the way you approached it, it... I mean, I felt like you were kind of kind of giving tip of the hat to Clive Bunker when you first started. It was like, oh, man, this kind of feels like the original. And then about the time that bridge hit, oh, uh-oh, there you go. And then from then on, it just built, and it's just like, man, uh, just Port Portnoy power. Uh, 
It's unmistakable on there, man. It's a really beautiful track. If there's one song I would want to transcribe, which I don't do that much of anymore. I used to did that 40 years ago, like we all did. Uh, but that of yours, that would that's what I would do. I just love I love the tastefulness of it. I love it. Oh, Father High in Heaven. You know, the Ian Anderson song. Well, I mean, just to, because there's no context, I should probably at least let you know, that's a series of covers albums that Neil Morse and I did. And and uh, through my career, I mean, I've covered probably, I mean, easily hundreds, maybe thousands of songs at this point between the full albums Dream Theater used to do or the tribute bands that Paul Gilbert and I had done and Neil Morse and I are doing these, these cover albums. And these cover albums that Neil and I do are mainly, I mean, Neil and I are really rooted in Prague. So obviously, you know, you're gonna hear us covering Toll and Genesis and Crimson and stuff like that. But also on these cover to cover albums, we cover some really, you know- uh, Yeah, you did Squeeze, you did Tempted, where you just played the groove. Well, we do, we do some 80s stuff like Squeeze and U2 and Elvis Costello, but the main focus is more of the, pop stuff of the 70s and 60s we do like bad finger and and uh you know like george harrison and paul mccartney's solo material and we do uh you know we even do the monkeys and uh the we even do the osmonds we do a, a an osmonds cover on this we do a bg's cover from their late 60s catalog so so for me the fun is digging into these early early roots and maybe some more obscure bands that you didn't even know of or didn't realize i was a fan of so you bring up him 43 so in that case of course i got to pull out some chops but i have just as much fun playing a bad finger song or a cream song or you know, any of these 60s or 70s tunes where I'm just laying it down. I was going to say, I'd like to make a quick comment on that very note because it's so appropriate to what you're saying. When I listen to um, your, and, and honestly, I, I had to do a deep dive because I can't keep track of all the bands you're in to start there. Um, but listening to the Winery Dogs, Mad World, and uh, and just listening to how you, and watching you in the video, you settle into a beautiful pocket and a simple approach to the song you guys are virtuous players and you don't, you know, you don't shy away from showing that between verses and, and choruses and so on. The, the chops are, you know, magnificent, but you also lay back and serve the song. And that's the one thing I really noticed on songs like Mad World and Xanadu. That's kind of the the mission statement for the Winery Dogs is like, you know, all these other bands that I play with that you mentioned at the top, you know, are rooted in either prog or metal. But the Winery Dogs is is really an opportunity to tap into something that's really neither of those. Really, the Winery Dogs is about catchy, hooky songs where we play for the song. And, you know, five minute, five minutes in and out. When it's not like these 30 minute epics that I do with Neil Morse. This is more about, uh, you know, it's got a lot of soul and and groove and R&B. And it's it's playing for the song over the vocals. But we sprinkle, you know, the the chops within it. You do. And, and that's what's admirable because it's not wall to wall. Look at me. You know, and there's, there, you know, there's some bands um, that can go without mentioning that just kind of don't understand air. And those you and the winery dogs do even the flying machines. I've not really spent a lot of time um, with that band and I just the Guardian track and crawl. Well, we with Flying Colors have done three albums. That's my my band with Neil Morse and Steve Morse and Casey McPherson. I did one of your covers. You did the second album cover, yep. That album had Guardian and Crawl, right? That's what I'm saying. Uh, that Those are from the third album, which we did in 2019. 
Man, you got it's hard to keep up with you, dude. It is. <laughs> it is. I, there was our 17th record, uh, the, the, an outtake. Flying Colors is another band of mine that's rooted in trying to do concise songs and, and poppy, catchy stuff. Uh, you know, there's a lot a lot of Beatle harmonies in there. And, you know, me, Casey and Neil are the three vocalists in the band. It's a lot of three part harmonies. But of course, like the winery dogs, you have these great players, you know, Steve Morse and Dave LaRue can play anything. So we could sprinkle those moments within the context of a more concise song. And and with Flying Colors, we have like the Beatles element, but we also have this element of like Radiohead and, and Coldplay and bands like that almost. The breakdown in Crawl, that beautiful breakdown in the middle where you start bringing in the Mellotron flutes and the Mellotron, I mean, that speaks to me. I love that as an arrangement. How do you do that live when you start getting into the full-on strings? I know you have two keyboard players between the two guys. I mean, obviously, there's enough talent within the band that anybody could pretty much cover anything on any instrument, you know. Uh, but in the case of the Mellotrons and flutes and stuff, that's all Neil's department. Neil, uh, he's solely the keyboard player in flying colors whereas opposed to everything else he and i do together he's kind of multi-instrumentalist on everything but his main gig in flying colors is the keyboard department and and vocals obviously as poppy as you say the band tends to be you still cover all those textures that speak like like early crimson and beautiful beautiful arrangements man i'm sad and a little bit ashamed to say i'm coming to this late considering how long i've known you but i've I've made some discoveries, musical discoveries today that, are, that I think are going to turn me into a fan. You know. Uh, you know? Oh, thank. I mean, there's, there's. Look, I, I, I get it. There's, I, with everything I do, it's a lot. It's a lot for, for even me to, to handle. Much less uh, expecting other people to, keep track of it all. So you know, you know, I do my best to cover as much ground as possible, and it's out there for those that want to explore. Along those lines, though, I mean, so much of it is is so super high quality and you're playing with the best of the best because you are one of the best. How do you decide, you know, who you work with? Are you like going out and pursuing, you know, Richie, going out and pursuing Billy Sheehan? Going out, how do you decide where to spend that time and who to work with or who you want to work with, I guess? I am particular about the people I work with. It may sound like I will play with anybody, but honestly, I won't. It, there's always got to be quality musicianship and people a lot of mutual respect within the, the the chemistry within the people i work with and um some of these bands are things that i assembled and handpicked and some of them are things that maybe i was asked to be a part of it's different for different bands so if you if you cite a band i could give you the history but it's different from band to band the other thing is i also enjoy um the hired gun kind of uh gig you know i've done a lot of that as well where uh, you know, I, I, I've toured with Avenged Sevenfold or Twisted Sister or, you know, bands like that where I'm coming in to help an existing band and just, quote unquote, just play the drums. And uh, I, I enjoy those scenarios as well. That can be fun because there's less pressure on having to come up with a tune or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, even like even the tour I just did with John, like, you know, um, even though he he and I have this tremendous history together, in the case of his tour, I was there to just play drums. I didn't have to make a decision or give an opinion. And a lot of times that's just as much fun. I was I was looking at notes today. The world is small that we live in. I mean, Event Sevenfold, Stone Sour, Fate's Warning. You've played for all of those guys. Yeah. And I and you and you've Worked for all of them, yeah, or created for all of them, I know, yeah. How about the tribute that Rudy Sarzo and Dee Snyder and you did, the theme from an imaginary Western? That was very recently, wasn't it? That was one of the COVID tracks. I mean, you know, once we got locked down for COVID, 
Um, even though I couldn't tour, I didn't slow down. I think I made seven or eight albums in 2020 because we were stuck at home. But I mean, those were those I'm citing full albums from full bands. But then there were dozens and dozens of file sharing, you know, COVID collaboration things that were everybody was doing over the, that year or two uh, just to fill the time and have fun. So the case of the track that I did with D and Rudy and Eddie Ojeda, um, after Leslie West passed, I guess a label put together a Leslie West tribute band and they asked D to be involved. And D came to me and Eddie Ojeda because we played together with Twisted and uh, talked about maybe doing a track. And I actually already had a drum track for a theme from an imaginary Western that I did from the first winery dog session. So that drum track was actually recorded about 10 years ago when we did the first when we did the first winery dogs album. We didn't know what the chemistry would be like. You know, we didn't know how it was going to fall together. So we ended up recording about eight covers to have as a backup in case we wanted to use them. We ended up not using them. Uh, so there's these eight drum tracks of covers that are just sitting you know, on a hard drive somewhere. So when D and Eddie came to me about uh, Leslie West track, I was like, hey, I, I have theme for imaginary Western if you want it. So that's where that stemmed from. And uh, Rudy got involved. And yeah, it's, it, it was a, a fun cover to do. That's nice. That's that can happen is you got that laying around the, you know, thank God for the digital days, I guess, where that's just laying around and you can send that. And here you guys go work on it. You know, exactly. that's great. Um, I, I have to ask, though, I mean, more specifically, it's one thing to say, look at all the bands you play with. And most bands have to think about that 10 or 12 songs from the new album and then maybe the catalog that proceeds. But how do you and, and I say this as a musician myself, how how do you keep track of the arrangements? And obviously you would rehearse if you're going to go out, but that's an immense catalog of stuff for you to keep in your brain. It, it is. And and I'll tell you what, for me, and it makes the band members I play with, it makes them absolutely sick. Uh, for me, it's all in there at all times. So a lot of, there's been many, many times through the years where I would, over the course of a weekend, play with three different bands. I'll have a gig with Twisted Sister. Then I'll go play a show with, you know, Transatlantic, who's doing a three-hour show of you know, half hour songs to begin with. And then I'll get on a plane and then go play with uh, the winery dogs. And, and in all these cases, I won't even listen to the songs until like I'm on the airplane going to the gig. No way. Yeah. I, I, I've just been somehow blessed with this elephant's memory to have it all in there at all times. So to me, the hardest part is not the music. To me, it's the scheduling, you know, trying to schedule all of these different bands and tours and gigs and sessions, it sometimes could be difficult, but I'm a very OCD minded person. I'm very, very, very organized. You know, I, I just, I use my phone, I put stuff in the calendar and I'm in charge. I don't like rely on a manager or an assistant or anything. So luckily I'm very organized in that respect. If you're doing those shows like, and you're not, you're not really, listen to the tunes until you get right there and so drummers would want to know this like when you get up there do you have like a click reference at least to where you go oh yeah that i mean do, do you remember that tempo that it, that song was that you haven't played for a year and a half and within the show i've never played with a click live other than one experience with when i toured with avenge sevenfold they use a click live or at least they did when i played with them and other than that band and that tour, uh, I have never ever played to a click live. It's all I am the click. It's that you know, it's that great. It's that great line from the movie Whiplash, like you know, 
what is it? I I am the click track or whatever. I I am the tempo, you know. And and I need I love that human element. I love when you used to go see Zeppelin or the Who, you know, they're up and down and in and out and up, you know, and and playing off of the audience and playing off of each other. To me, that human element is absolutely mandatory for, for everything. My question was to just for a reference to to hear, oh, that's the tempo of this one. Off. Here we go. I'm not saying play with it, but do you have click, click? Okay, here we go. One, two, three, and there it is. Just like a reference. The only time I've ever done that was literally the last tour I did with John Petrucci, only because uh, when we were in rehearsals for that tour, uh, we decided, I really should say he decided because it was his gig, but we, you know, we collectively felt that some of those tempos felt a little slower than what we recorded them at. You know, when you record it, sometimes, you know, it, you know, you're in the moment, you're going for it, but then sometimes, you, you know, months later, you'll reflect and it's like, oh man, I wish that was pulled back a little. So in the case of John's tour, we had three particular songs where our monitor guy would give us the click beforehand just to settle in, you know, from what we were thinking in our head because we were used to the album version. And then once uh, once I counted us in off of that temple, he pulled the click and then we were off to the races from there. Those songs that you, you listen to for the first time on the plane on the way to a gig and there's no click track, it's incumbent upon you to not only know where your fills are going to go inside a song structure and all that, which blows my mind that you can kind of settle on what you're going to do that night. Um, but where, where does that tempo come from? You just remember the tempo of the song from what you just listened to? or you're counting the song in the tempos are in my head and and i'll i'll admit i'm uh guilty of sometimes letting the adrenaline get the better of me and and there's probably times where things should have been a lot slower like for instance i just watched the video of the bubba bash i did a few nights ago and i played la via strangiato and i watched the video back and i was like oh wow that's that's flying i mean that's booking so yeah there are times when the adrenaline would get the best of you and and i remember so many moments like I mentioned that one tour I did with Avenged Sevenfold where we did play to a click. I remember so many moments in my head uh, before a song would start, I'd be thinking, okay, I would count us in like that. But then the click comes on and it's like that. And I'm like, that can't be right. No way is that right. But sure enough, it is. So yeah, I'm as guilty as, of, of anybody of maybe perhaps letting the adrenaline occasionally get the best of me. Uh, but I'll take the human element over anything. And Hugh, you mentioned the fills and stuff like that. I, I don't write my fills. I, I just, I'm in the moment. You feel them in the studio. I'm that way. You know, I'll have my structure, my parts from verse to chorus to bridge to solo, but the transitions and the fills in the studio from take to take are completely different. And then the same thing goes with live. I'm just kind of in the moment and feeling it. And has it always been that way? Did you plan stuff more when you were younger did you always approach it the way you approach it now i mean maybe when i was younger those early dream theater albums you know we were in our 20s when we made them and uh we had a lot more time to work on them you know some of those early dream theater albums were written over the course of years because we didn't have a singer or we didn't have a record label or what have you so we weren't touring so those early albums we had a lot of time to get very meticulous but then once the ball started rolling in our career and you're touring eight to 12 months out of the year or 15 months out of the year, the time you have to sit in your garage and spend uh, eight hours on two bars of music, you know, available time like that becomes less and less and less the busier you are with your career. I like your list of, of influences. I mean, it's so broad that from Vinny to Ringo, you know, it's a huge number of people that have obviously 
interested you. Whether or not you drew from them or not, I don't know. Oh, I've I, I've drawn from every single one of them. And honestly, it's not just drummers. You know, some of my biggest heroes are guys like Frank Zappa or Jimmy Page or Roger Waters or even filmmakers, Stanley Kubrick, David Lynch. You know, they they inspire me on an artistic level that can be applied to everything I do. I mean, that makes total sense. I think as musicians, we we do respond to great vocalists and great arrangers. We talked to Billy Sheehan a few months ago. Um, gosh, I guess it's been six months ago or so now. And he was talking about the, the new Winery Dogs album. Talk to us about the new record a little bit. It is our third. The first two we made were back in 2013 and 2015. And they were back to back, you know, put out the album, tour for a year, go in, make the second album tour for another year. So after that whirlwind of back-to-back cycles we wanted to step back and get a breather and go off and do the other things we all the three of us do outside of the winery dogs and uh, after a few years away from each other we you know started to miss each other and we decided in 2019 to do a u.s tour in the summer just for the fun of it no new product to promote or support no agenda other than just to enjoy each other and the music again and we had such a great time reconnecting on that tour. We said, okay, well, we obviously we got to make a third record together. So, but then the pandemic hit, kind of put the brakes on that for a little while. And then once the smoke cleared from that in the summer of 21, we got together and started working on what is now, uh, you know, coming out next month, our third album. Yeah. I mean, we love playing together. We love this music. It's, it's, uh, like I said earlier, for me, it's a very different vehicle because it's not prog or metal. It's it. I get to tap into a whole different style of music that I love that I can't do elsewhere. And playing with Billy and Richie are just amazing. And the, also the, the the power trio format is so great. I mean, Hugh, obviously, you know, you know, Rush, we're, we're one of the greatest power trios of all time. But, you know, I lo- also love Cream and King's X and, uh, you know, the police, uh, you know, there's... There's so many great trios and and it gives all three of us such a chance to stretch out and uh, explore so much space when there's only three instruments. Watch the the video for Xanadu. Great location, by the way. I would have used it on an album cover. It was so beautiful. Actually, uh, to be honest, it reminds me. The scenery reminded me of the Octavarium cover that you did for for us. Yeah, it definitely. Well, I've always been a big fan of the Lake District in in England. You know, that's appeared in several of my pieces. But I have to ask you: Was that all shot on? I mean, because I don't see any tracks from the the. You know, usually when you put camera dollies down, you have to lay down tracks. It disturbs the grass. Was that whole thing done off a drone? No, uh, no, there were tracks down, but it was astroturf, so it was it was pretty easy to get away with. So you laid astroturf to the horizon. Well, we didn't lay that down. That was an existing house. That's, believe it or not, is somebody's view from their living room in their backyard. Yeah. It was just the the director that we worked with, uh, Vicente Cordero, who we've done many, many videos with. Uh, He just found that location and it was absolutely perfect because the song is about uh, living in, well, it's not about, but it's referenced in the lyrics about living in Malibu and Xanadu and stuff. So it was just a beautiful location for that. AstroTurf has its place. That's what I used on signals. <laughs> uh, how, how much do you practice? Obviously, if you're playing a show every night, like all of us were on tour, you don't practice. But do you have a regimen when you're not out doing something? I, I get so embarrassed saying this, but... <laughs> I probably haven't practiced in about 25 years. I mean, it's it's sickening, I know, and it's um, maybe disappointing to some people. But, you know, like I said earlier, when you're younger and you have the time 
to practice with your band five nights a week for five hours a night and sit home all day before band practice to practice. You have that time. But like once my career began rolling and, you know, starting in the 90s, I've been on the road for 30 years straight with not much of a break, uh, whether it be with Dream Theater, which was very full time for me. But then post Dream Theater, going from band to band, to tour to tour, session to session. I spend so much of my life behind the kit, whether it be on the road or in the studio, that when I'm home, I want to see my my wife and my kids and my dog and watch some movies and watch some TV. You know, I have enough time behind the kit to work on what I need to work on when I'm in the studio or in a dressing room or whatever. But when I'm home, honestly, the last thing I want to do is get behind a kid. It would almost feel selfish of me to do do something like that when you know when you have a wife and kids well that shows how busy you are too i mean if you if you had if you had six months off you might go after three months you hadn't touched a drum well hell i might want to get out there and bang around a little bit even neil would always talk to me about how you know it's time to do another album and i've got to go into the into the gym and start yoga again just so i can play like i did when i was 30 you know well neil neil was such a an inspiring case for me the fact that he began taking lessons so late into his career and went through that whole thing with freddie freddie gruber yeah and i you know he's notorious he was notorious for how much he liked to rehearse in fact alex lifeson once said to me uh, I, i'm gonna get the quote wrong but it was something to the effect that neil is the sort of person that practices to practice you know, <laughs> and would spend that, put that time in woodshedding. And I have so much admiration for Neil that he had that kind of discipline and he would spend that much time. But he was also the type, uh, you know, as much as I've seen people compare he and I stylistically, I honestly, I think we are worlds apart stylistically. I think our bands, Dream Theater and Rush, had a lot of similarities. But as far as Neil and myself, in terms of the type of drummers we are, um, he was very meticulous and very methodical in the in creating those drum parts, recreating those drum parts, playing them consistently from night to night. Whereas I'm so much the opposite. I'm a kind of throw and go Keith Moon kind of guy. I had the 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 knowledge that Neil had, the, you know, the chops and the knowledge and knowing how to play odd time signatures and these complex passages. But in terms of the drumming itself, I'm definitely always more of a, a feel guy in that respect. And you'll change it up from night to night with the different bands. Now, I know Neil would Neil wouldn't do that in Rush. No, I, I mean that's why he was the uh, the air drummer's god. You know, you go to a Rush concert, everybody's playing every one of those, including myself, is playing every one of those fills. Uh, but you come to any one of my concerts, you'll see just as many air drummers. But I'm not playing anything; they're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but that was true. That wasn't so true in Dream Theater. You got you got pretty locked in on those parts. No. Or yeah, you... yeah. To be fair, that's true. I mean, that music called for that consistency for sure. Well, I don't know if I agree with that because you know you being different every night wouldn't change. It would just make better or you know change up the the performance. It wouldn't necessarily. Yeah. Well, with, with Dream Theater, I took it to a different level because when I was in the band, I would write a different set list for every single show. So every night on a Dream Theater tour back when I was in the band, uh, you can go three nights in a row and get three completely different shows. So that that was the aspect that kept me on my toes, you know, in those days. That would definitely do it right there. So you're obviously a big fan, Mike. So who is the first uh, who is the first concert you went to as a as a fan that you paid to go to? Um, the first three that I always say, the first thing that I remember, uh, I saw George Harrison in '74 on the 
short-lived tour that he did. Um, so I saw him on 74. Then I two years later, I saw Paul McCartney on Wings on the Wings Over America tour. Uh, so bo- both of those shows left a huge impact on me. And then the big one for me was 1977, December 14th, Madison Square Garden, seeing Kiss. I was 10 years old, and that was like my Beatles, Ed Sullivan moment. You know, that was, you know, smelling the pot smoke in the air and just, you know, seeing the larger-than-life guy, the four of them up there. So that was the life-changing one. So those were the three first concerts I saw. Where was the George and the and the McCartney shows at? Where were those at? Uh, George was, uh, I was living in Tucson, Arizona in 74 for two years. I lived out there. And then uh, uh, Wings Over America was at the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. The George Harrison tour, I remember the reviews of that tour He from reading the magazines. He had throat problems. Did you Do you remember that? Was yeah, it was a short-lived tour. I think he ended up pulling out after a few weeks. So uh, it was, uh, it, he had bad reviews. He was having vocal issues. And I think that was the only tour he ever did. Uh, other than I think he did some shows in Japan with Eric Clapton at one point later in the nineties. But uh, but that was it. I mean, I, I was lucky that I saw that tour. Was Keltner playing? Might've been. I think he was. I just remember Billy Preston was in the band and uh, Ravi Shankar opened. Tom Scott was in the band. I remember. Maybe I was young. I just remember seeing George and he came out and played uh, his Rocky Fender, uh, you know, the painted one that he used on I Am the Walrus and Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, man. Like, oh How cool was that? Yeah. How often have you gone to see McCartney? I've seen him probably about eight times now through the years, you know, starting with Wings and uh, as recently as a few years ago. And his, you know, his the band that he's had for the last 20 years is so it's just incredible oh what a what a band amazing they're great well he's no slouch either despite his his age you know i mean he's still you know he's 80 years old he's still playing three-hour shows you know incredible and i had the i had the privilege of of meeting him and spending some time with him and he was just what a what a incredible pleasure and honor to be in his presence and he was just such a humble Gracious guy. I mean, I would have, you know, I've been lucky enough to have met both Paul and Ringo. And in both cases, they were just so cool. And, you know, Paul spent, I would have been happy with a handshake and and 10 seconds, but he spent, you know, 15 minutes with me and my daughter, just the three of us, you know, engaging me in conversation. And it was just so inspiring to see, you know, one of the, the most famous musicians on earth still being like that you know the two guys on this podcast are going to roll their eyes back in their head for the 10th time but i'm just gonna i'm just gonna ask this it doesn't even have to be part of this thing but has george martin made you a a martini no no i I never met george martin why do you have to rub that in every third (laughs) podcast Hugh? his name is in the drink mark george martin martini (laughs) yeah yeah there you go (laughs) just because we're talking about it the boys are sick of this story but i'm so proud of the evening i spent with him i i demo safari my my photographer friend who shot the stones most exclusively almost through the 80s and pink floyd i had breakfast with with the uh, product manager from rca and they were talking about george coming into four seasons you got to be there at seven o'clock and we're just having breakfast. And I looked up and said, George, who? And I said, George Martin, he's, he's doing his in my life album. Um, he's finishing it up and he's just touring it. You know, that's the one that had Goldie Hawn and had Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey doing I'm the walrus and Jeff Beck was on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, they gave him an Eskimo sculpture, the label gave him, and they went to his suite, you know, and I said, what time should I be there? And Sarah looked at me and said, I can't get you in. So I sat quietly, you know, really pissed off. And I thought, 
what if I carry one of his power packs in? I could be I could be a photo assistant for 30 seconds. She said, we can make that happen. So I, I went in and I ended up meeting him. We just connected, George. I was at the bar. I was at the bar and he came over and said, uh, and he started making a martini. And I said, my father would have considered this really important, what you're doing here. And he looked at me and I swear he said, then your father was a very astute man and don't fathers always know best. So right away we hit it off. He, he made me a martini, which he later told me, Ian, Ian uh, Fleming worked out the uh, the formula for the martini and named it the Vesper, which was named for the one, I think the one life of Bond's, the one love of Bond's life, Vesper Lynn. Anyways, it was three parts gin, two parts vodka, one part Lille Blanc. And so I, it's been my favorite drink ever since. But. And the question is, was it a martini or a Gibson? Was it olives or cocktail onions? Uh, no, it was lemon. Whoa, lemon. really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and what was even neat, neater about the guys, because he had about, there was about 30 people in the room, and he went over to the piano in his suite and sat down, and he just tapped the bench after he made me my drink. It was just like an invitation to continue our conversation. So. I, I sat and he played some Debussy and some just snippets of, of Chopin. And then he invited his wife, Dame Judy Martin over and we monopolized. I know I say this cause you know, you're a friend and you, and you're, you're a big Beatle fan. Um, and I'm just jealous of the fact that you met Ringo and George. So uh, I just had to mention that an evening with Mr. Sir George was. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I just uh, talking about having a drink with a legend. I just posted yesterday on my socials that uh, it was Jimmy Page's birthday yesterday. And my, my experience like you have with George Martin and Martinis, I had an experience like that with Jimmy Page and a bottle of Jägermeister. We played together in 95 and he just came into my dressing room. I don't even know why or, you know, why, but the door was open. He just rummaged in. It was just myself and my wife. And he and I ended up sitting there with a bottle of Jaeger, drinking almost the whole thing together over the course of an hour, just shooting the shit and talking about everything. Ooh, that was a headache the next day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, isn't he a lovely guy, though? Um, I went down with Kalodner to meet him and Coverdale when they were both working on a project, when they were both not working with Robert Plant. And, and I think David had fired his 10th band at that point. But meeting him and having him come in from the beach with sand all over his feet and his sunburnt nose because he's such a British boy, you know, and having having lunch with him. I actually had an occasion to sort of have lunch with Jimmy when he was working on the... Um, covered up, covered up, thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's a charmed life we lead, huh? Well, thank you, Mike, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Congrats on all your success. My pleasure. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 